السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, as promised, inshallah, today I'll share a few words about fitna. The word fitna is quite famous and known in virtually all languages shared by Muslims. It's been imported from Arabic, but like most words imported from Arabic into other languages, the meaning has become very narrow and restricted. So we simply treat fitna as meaning scandal or temptation, not even temptation, scandal and seduction. The truth is, in Arabic, the word fitna is very diverse. It refers to many different things depending on the context. And all of these different meanings have actually been used in the Qur'an and Hadith. In fact, in the Qur'an itself, the word fitna can mean, and this is just the Qur'an, not even the Hadith, but in the verses of the Qur'an, depending on the verse, the word fitna can mean test, i.e. tried and tribulation. It can also mean punishment, adab. It can mean burning. It can mean deception, i.e. misguidance, leading something or someone away from the path. It can mean causing someone to slip. So fitna can mean slipping, punishment, misguidance, testing, and various other meanings. Even burning. So the, the verse, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَتَنُوا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ For the scholars, for the ulama and the students of Arabic, this can mean, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ أَحْرَقُوا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ those who burnt and tortured the believing men and believing women. But before I continue, just to give you an example, that depending on the context and the usage, the word fitna can mean any of the aforementioned things as well as others. Test, trial, tribulation, corruption, seduction, temptation, punishment, torture, discord, strife, disturbance, all of these meanings are valid for the word fitna, scandal, but it all depends on the context. But originally, 
And all of this will become clearer with the understanding of the original meaning of fitna. And the purpose of today's discussion is just to share a few verses of the Holy Quran and Ahadith about fitna, minor and major, and what a believer's response and behavior should be during such a fitna. So the original meaning of fitna in Arabic is to assay gold and silver to evaluate its purity and true content. So as is traditional throughout the world, blacksmiths, ironsmiths and uh, uh, metallurgists and others, they would insert gold or silver ores into fire, melt it and place it under intense heat and burn it in order to melt it and thereby determine the quantity, quality and purity of the gold, silver or the precious metal in that ore. And this determination of the purity, the quality and quantity of the gold, silver, or precious metal, this would be done by burning in intense heat and actually melting, placing it under severe stress and heat and burning. That's actually the original meaning of fitna and the process. Now, in Islam, in the Quran, in Hadith, this is where the term trial and testing has come into use. And quite simply, in Islam, what fitna means, fitna means anything by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests and evaluates the sincerity and purity of a believer. That's the meaning of fitna. And that's where we get the term test. So the simplest meaning of fitna is a test. And it's drawn from the test and the assaying of metallurgists, ironsmiths, goldsmiths, blacksmiths, etc., when they would use this process. That's the meaning of fitna. Now, from the Quran and the Hadith, we learn that life itself is a fitna. Things in life are a fitna. Every part of life is a fitna. The world is a fitna. People are a fitna. We are a fitna for each other. Allah says in the Quran, وَجَعَلْنَا بَعْضَكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ فِتْنَةٍ وَكَانَ رَبُّكَ بَصِيرًا That we have made you, some of you, a fitna for others. So we are a fitna. The world is a fitna. Life is a fitna. Wealth is a fitna. Children are a fitna. People are a fitna. The world is a fitna. Life is a fitna. Life as a whole is a test. The world is a test. So whether it's actually called a fitna or not, ultimately that's what it is. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us 
with the very purpose of testing us. Allah created life and death in order to test us. الذي خلق الموت والحياة ليبلوكم أيكم أحسن عملا Exalted is he, blessed is he, in whose hand is the kingdom, and he is all-powerful over all things. He, Allah, who created death and life, not life and death, الذي خلق الموت والحياة who created death and life because non-existence was our original condition. And then Allah brought us into existence from non-existence. So he who created death and life, why? So that he may test you. Who of you is the best in deeds? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created life, created death, and placed us in this world in order to test us. We often think that fitna refers only to bad. So bad things are a fitna. Scandal, corruption, strife, discord, disharmony. Trouble, problems. But anything, whether it's good or bad, is a fitna. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says... That we will test you in ill and in good as a fitna. So we will test you with ill as well as good as a fitna. So fitna can be good or bad. And that's why we are tested in our children. We are tested in our wealth. We are tested in our families. We are tested with our spouses. Allah actually has made ni'mah a fitna as well. So when Allah blesses us with good, with a blessing, that blessing is also a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to see how we behave, how we respond. So everything which is a test is a fitna. Of course, we aren't, when we refer to the word fitna, we mean trouble and seduction and temptation and huge problems. But before I mention anything about that, as an introduction, like I said, I want to explain that fitna can be in good as well as in bad. Fitna just simply means a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to evaluate our sincerity, our purity, our quality as believers. And verse after verse of the Holy Qur'an attests to this, that Allah will test mankind. And not just mankind in general for belief and disbelief, but believers as well. So Allah will specifically test the believers. In a verse, أَمْ حَسِبْتُمْ أَن تَدْخُلُوا الْجَنَّةَ وَلَمَّا يَأْتِكُمْ مَثَلُ الَّذِينَ خَلَوْا مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ مَسَّتْهُمُ الْبَأْسَاءُ وَالضَّرَّاءُ وَزُلْزِلُوا حَتَّى يَقُولَ الرَّسُولُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعَهُ مَتَى نَصْرُ اللَّهِ أَلَا إِنَّ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ قَرِيبٌ Allah says, what do you think? That you will enter Jannah? Even though the likes of those days have not yet visited you. That's passed on those who came before you. 
affliction and adversity struck them and befell them. And they were, they were shaken, so much so that even the messenger said, and the believers, when will the help of Allah arrive? Know that the help of Allah is close. And that's where the verse ends. No, lo, the help of Allah is nigh, it's close. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that he won't just test us for faith and lack of faith. But even after embracing, even after claiming to be Muslims, even after being believers, Allah will test the quality and the strength and the purity of our faith to this degree that Allah says, what do you think you will enter Jannah just like that? When the likes of those days that visited those who came before you have not yet visited you. Trials, tribulations, and not minor trials and tribulations. As Allah says, what were the likes of the days that visited the, the people of before? They were shaken. So much so that even the believers, and not just the believers, but even the messenger of Allah said, when will the help of Allah come? So Allah will test us even after faith. In another verse, مَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَذَرَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ عَلَى مَا أَنْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ حَتَّى يَمِيزَ الْخَبِيثَ مِنَ الطَّيِّبِ Allah is not one to leave the believers as they are in their current state. And as you are. So Allah is not one to leave the believers as you are. Just the way you are. No, Allah will test you. So much so that Allah uses the words, حَتَّى يَمِيزَ الْخَبِيثَ مِنَ الطَّيِّبِ Until Allah distinguishes the impure from the pure. Again, that same process of melting ore in order to extract and to determine the quality and the purity of the, of the gold or silver or precious metal within. Allah will test you so much so that Allah will distinguish and extract the impure from the pure. Allah will separate the two. So indeed, it won't be a simple process. It will be very severe. That's the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has made the world a place of test, an abode of trial, an abode of tribulation. And how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala test us? Like I said about the gold and silver, Allah will ultimately stress test us. This, that's fitna. Fitna is a stress test in virtually all industries. Companies, staff, individuals, teams are placed under stress tests to check whether they will be able to withstand the pressure when it does come. Can they make it or will they break under that pressure? That stress test, that's what fitna is. Every fitna is a stress test. Now there are minor fitnas. And there are major fitnas. The word fitna in Arabic, the plural is fitan. And that's a word mentioned in the ahadith. And the Prophet ﷺ foretold that fitan, i.e. the plural of fitna, fitan will come upon you. And we learn from the collective 
from the collection of a hadith that the Prophet described fitan, fitnas, in the following way. That fitan will come on you. I see fitan dropping like raindrops on the streets in between your homes. I see fitan, trials, tribulations and tests, falling on the ground like raindrops in between the houses on the paths of Medina. And that was in Medina. Once Prophet ﷺ climbed up one of the fortresses of Medina. When we mean fortresses, we are talking about not fortresses per se, but fortified houses. So you had simple homes and you had fortified homes. The fortified homes were built with much stronger material, uh, even stone. And they weren't just one or two stories, but rather a few stories tall. Uh, A good similarity is even now in some parts of Yemen, they've still got traditional multi-story homes. So they aren't modern buildings, they're old traditional homes, they're multi-story these are similar to what were known as the Atam of Medina, meaning the multi-story fortified homes of Medina. So once Prophet ﷺ climbed up onto the roof of one of these Atam uh, fortified fort- uh, homes or s- small fortresses of Medina, and standing on the roof as he overlooked the houses of Medina and the city laid out before him, Prophet subhanAllah, he climbed up there. He didn't tell the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum what a magnificent view. Rather, he said to them, I see fitan falling like raindrops in between the homes of Medina. Prophet gave us warning after warning about fitan that will fall upon the ummah. He warned the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, sometimes even individually. Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu close companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as he was carrying bricks and was covered in dust, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam brushed off the dust from his body and said to him, Alas, alas, O Ammar, how will it be when the rebellious faction shall kill you? So Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu anh said, A'udhu billahi min al-fitan, I seek protection, Allah's protection, refuge in him from fitan, from fitnas. So he warned individual sahaba radiyallahu anhum about fitan. Hudayfut ibn al-Yaman radiyallahu anh, he was famously known as a keeper of the secrets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would confide in him tell him many secrets which other Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were not privy to. This is why some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum used to ask him that am I one of the hypocrites? Even Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu anhum, it said of him he would specifically ask Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman radiyallahu anhum that, oh Hudayfa, tell me about the munafiqeen, but he would refuse to divulge that information. Hudayfa radiyallahu anhum, was told by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam about individual hypocrites with their names. 
So he was privy to a lot of secret information. And this is why he was famously known as Sahibu Sirri Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the companion or the one, the holder and the keeper of the secrets of the Messenger of Allah. So Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman radiyallahu one of the things he used to do, he mentions in a hadith later by Bukhari and others, that people would ask the Rasul, uh, ask Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam about good things. I would ask him about ill, makhafata in yudrikani, out of fear that ill will befall me. So whereas people would ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam about good things, I would specifically ask the Prophet ﷺ about sharr, about ill and evil things. Why? So that I could be wary of ill, I could be wary of evil, and I could fear it and protect myself from it. So the Prophet ﷺ told him a lot, and some of these things he conveyed to others after him, Hudayfah And in one such hadith, he mentions lots of things. And one of them is, he said, Ya Rasulullah, Allah brought us good. We were in evil before. So Allah brought us good with Islam. So Ya Rasulullah, will there be any evil after this good? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, of course there will. And then after this evil, will there be good again? So the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, there will be good. But that good will be clouded. So it won't be as pure and as clear as the good at the beginning of Islam, the, the, the good at the time of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And then Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, after the second good, which will be slightly clouded, will there be evil again? Prophet wasallam said, yes. And then Prophet wasallam said, there will be people there will be callers standing at the gates of the fire of Jahannam. They will be inviting people. And whoever responds to their call and answers them, these callers and inviters at the gates of Jahannam will fling and lead those people into the fire of Jahannam. So there will be people who will be inviting others towards the fire of Jahannam, and they will be standing at the gates of Jahannam calling people. It's a hadith of Bukhari. So Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said, Ya Rasulullah, describe them to us. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Hum min jildatina wa bi'alsinatina. They are of our skin, and they will be speaking in our tongue. So our own people, of our own skin, of our own ethnicity, belonging to us, speaking in our language and our tongue, they will be part of this great, these great fitan, whereas they will be standing at the gates of Jahannam, inviting people. And people will be seduced and deceived simply because we think, oh, they are our own. They are of our skin. These are the words of the hadith. This isn't my description. Hudayfah said, Ya Rasulullah, describe these callers of Jahannam who stand at the gates of Jahannam to us. 
So the Prophet said, They will be of our skins and they will be speaking with our tongues, with our languages. They will lead people to Jahannam. That's just one of the descriptions of fitna and the people of fitna. So Hudayfa was very familiar with fitna. And this is why there's that famous hadith about Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab where Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others all relate that Shaqiq says that Hudayfa told us, same Hudayfa that once we were seated with Umar ibn al-Khattab and Umar said to us that who of you remembers and has preserved the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam about the fitna. Not just fitna, about the fitna, or in general, fitna. So Hudayfa radiyallahu an said, I do. I preserve that hadith. So Umar radiyallahu an said to him, Innaka lajari, you are bold. Now, that, that wasn't a reprimand. Umar wasn't reprimanding or chastising Hudayfa that, oh, you bold? No, why? Because Umar specifically asked the question that who of you remembers and has memorized and preserved the hadith of Rasulullah about fitna? So Hudayfa replied, that's exactly what Umar was expecting. That's what he was asking. So why would he say, in the you are bold? That you being very forward. He asked a question. So Hudayfa replied, how is that being bold? So what's the meaning of Umar saying to Hudayfa, indeed you are bold? What that means is what I said earlier. That Umar knew that it would be Hudayfa radiallahu who would know and remember the hadith for the simple reason that out of all the companions, he was the one who was the most forward and persistent in asking and questioning Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam about fitna and about ill. So he was bold and persistent and forward at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in questioning him about ill and evil. So Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said, I remember the hadith. I have preserved the hadith. So Umar radiyallahu anhu said, indeed you are bold. So then Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu related the hadith to Umar radiyallahu anhu. And what was the hadith? So Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's statement was, فِتْنَةُ الرَّجُلِ فِي أَهْلِهِ وَمَالِهِ وَوَلَدِهِ وَجَارِهِ these are the words of Bukhari. That the Prophet ﷺ had told us about fitna. That a man's fitna in his family, in his wealth, sorry, in his children, in his wealth, in his neighbor. This fitna is 
expiated by and compensated for with salah, sadaqah, charity, fasting, and al-amr wal-nahi, meaning enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. What's the meaning of that part of the hadith? As I said, fitna is minor and major. And every part of our life is a fitna in which Allah tests us. So our children are a fitna. Our spouses are a fitna. Our wealth is a fitna. Do not be offended with the words that our spouses are a fitna. Allah actually says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwwal lakum fahdharuhum. Wa in ta'fu wa tasfahu wa taghfiruhum. Inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwwal lakum fahdharuhum. O believers, indeed, of your spouses and your children, are your enemies. Therefore fear them. These are the words of the Quran. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwwal lakum fahdharuhum. That, O oh believers, indeed, of your spouses and of your children are your enemies. Therefore fear them. And then later in the second verse, Allah says, إِنَّمَا أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَأَوْلَادُكُمْ فِتْنَةٌ وَاللَّهُ عِنْدَهُ أَجْرٌ عَظِيمٌ Your wealth and your children are aught but a fitna. And with Allah is the great reward. So Allah, and what's the reason for this? Why say they are your enemies? It doesn't mean that you have to hate one another. The background to the revelation of this verse may shed some light on this, which is simply this, that... During the, after the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ till the conquest of Mecca, hijrah was an obligation and not just an obligation but the greatest deed for the Muslims. A number of Muslims in Mecca wanted to emigrate from Mecca to Medina after the Prophet ﷺ and join him in the city of Medina. But they were hesitant simply because their wives and their children or their families prevented them from leaving, did not want, meaning not forcibly prevented them, but the love of their children and of their spouses prevented them from making this journey and fulfilling this obligation. So out of love for their children, out of love for their families, they remained behind in Mecca and they did not do the hijrah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said of them, that indeed of your, children, of your spouses and of your children are your enemies. Why your enemies? فَحْذَرُوهُمْ And therefore fear them. That our children are a test. Our spouses are a test. And that's what Allah says in the second verse. And in Surah Al-Munafiqoon, Allah tells us, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُلْهِكُمْ أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُكُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَمَنْ يَفْعَلْ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَائِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ O believers, do not let... Your, children, your wealth and your children distract you from the remembrance of Allah. And whoever does this, then these are the ones who are the losers. So our children are a test. Our wives are a test. Our husbands are a test. A test in what way? 
to see that, to see whether we obey them or we obey Allah. It's as simple as that. Whether we obey them or we obey Allah. Ammar ibn Yasir, radiyallahu the same Sahabi, of whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that, alas, how will it be when the rebellious faction will kill you? Unfortunately, this was part of that fitna which arose later, that th- those tumultuous events, that discord, that strife, that disturbance, that commotion, that war. One of the meanings of fitna is war. When after the death of Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu anhu, Sahaba radiyallahu anhum unfortunately split into three main factions. One faction remained neutral. One faction supported Ali radiyallahu anhu. And one faction of the companions, they had certain arguments such as they wanted the blood of Uthman to be avenged and they wanted Ali who had become the Khalifa they weren't contesting him in his Khilafa but they wanted the Khalifa Ali to pursue the killers of Uthman and avenge him and in his wisdom and for his own reasons, Ali radiyallahu an was at that time refusing to do that. At that particular time. So, or he, he wasn't doing it. So some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, they actually marched to various areas of the Muslim realm to gain support. And one of the leaders of that faction, just one of the leaders, was Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. She was in Makkah al-Mukarramah. She marched from Makkah to Basra in Iraq in order to win support for her cause, along with Talha and Zubair radiyallahu anhumah. So Ali radiyallahu anhu, he sent his son, Hassan, and also Ammar ibn Yasir, the same Sahabi, to Kufa, to win the support of the people of Kufa and to dissuade them from supporting the other faction, one of whose greatest leaders was Umm al-Mu'mineen, Aisha radiyallahu anha. So Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu anha ascended the member of Kufa and he mentioned he addressed the people of Kufa, Hadith of Bukhari. He said, O oh people, indeed, Aisha radiallahu anha is the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the dunya and in the akhirah. Meaning, of course, she has her position. She is the mother of the believers. She is our mother. She is the mother of the believers. For she is a wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the dunya and in the akhirah. 
But his words were, but Allah has tested you with her, meaning with Aisha radiallahu anha, to see whether you obey her or you obey him. Now the reason for mentioning this is that we, we feel offended if it's said to us that your spouses and your children are a trial and a fitna from Allah. The reason they are a fitna is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wishes to see whether you obey them or you obey Allah. Or whether you obey Allah, disobey Allah because of them. So Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anh went to the extent of telling everyone that indeed the greatest honor and respect are reserved for our mother, Aisha radiallahu anha, because she is a wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, not just in this dunya, but in the akhirah. But you cannot support, support her in this instance because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has tested you through her to see whether you obey her or whether you obey him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us through each other. And that's the meaning of the verse. وَجَعَلْنَا بَعْضَكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ فِتْنَةٍ That we have made some of you a fitna and a test for others. To see if we obey each other or Allah or whether we disobey Allah because of each other. And that's the meaning of children. Of course, it can be in the minor sense. It can also mean a distraction. Various authors of hadith, including Imam Abu Dawud, Imam Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and others, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, they all relate to beautiful hadith that the Prophet ﷺ was on the mimbar, giving a khutbah. He was actually giving a sermon on the mimbar. When Hassan and Hussein, his grandsons, both of them, they came towards him in the masjid. Both of them had red or leather, tanned leather color shirts. And they were, as they were making their way forward, they were stumbling and the Prophet ﷺ was watching them. He was actually giving a khutbah. When they came close, Rasulullah ﷺ cut his speech, his khutbah, descended, picked up both of them, placed them on his laps, on his lap, and said to the congregation, Sadaqallahu wa Rasuluh, Allah and his Rasul have spoken the truth. fitna, that your wealth and your children are aught but a fitna. I was giving the khutbah, and when I saw these two grandsons of mine, I could not do anything but cut off my khutbah and descend in order to seize them. So Rasulullah used the verse in the innocent sense that indeed children can be a distraction. Families are a distraction. Our wealth is a distraction. And that's why Allah warns us in Surah Al-Munafiqoon. Do not let your wealth and your children distract you from the remembrance of Allah. So Hudayfa radiyallahu anh told Umar radiyallahu anh that the hadith you're asking about is this. Fitnatul rajuli fi ahlihi wa malihi wa waladihi wa jarih. That the fitna, the trial of a man in his family, this is it, in his wealth. Ultimately our wealth is a fitna. 
in his children and in his neighbour. Why the neighbour? Is because, again, a neighbour can be a cause for the disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If a neighbour is bad, then a person, of course, he's a fitna. If a neighbour is an unsuitable one, then he's a fitna. And that's why in Arabic, the Arabs have a saying, Al-Jaru Qabla Dar, that when you buy a home or look for a home to rent or purchase, then people, people, of course, today, what do we do? We look at schools, we look at uh, facilities, we look at proximity to shops, and various other amenities. The Arabs had a saying, Al-Jar Qabla Dar, forget everything, look at the neighbours before you buy the house. Al-Jar Qabla Dar, before the Dar comes a Jar, meaning the neighbour before the house. Because if you have a good neighbour, you live in bliss and peace. And if you have a terrible neighbour, have programmes, neighbours from hell, because you could be a multimillionaire and you could be living in a mansion, if you have a neighbour who is indisposed to you, who is an unworthy, ill neighbour, then life can become hell for you. So if a neighbour is undesirable, then maybe you could disobey Allah by transgressing yourself, by stooping to his level, by engaging in hostilities with him, little petty things, by being, by harbouring enmity towards him. That's one thing. You could disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even through a good neighbour, i.e. he's on good terms with you. But you overlook his faults, you conceal his faults, you tolerate all of the things he does. And not only that, but sometimes you participate or become a partner in that crime or in that sin simply because you are being invited to the disobedience of Allah by the neighbour. And because you want to keep neighbourly relations with him, you go along with it but disobey Allah in the process. And another meaning of a neighbour being a fitna, الْهَاكُمُ takathur. One-upmanship and rivalry has distracted you. Keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the neighbour, that is a fitna. That's the meaning. In fact, many ulama in the classical ulama, in their tafsir, of the verse, وَجَعَلْنَا بَعْضَكُمْ لِبَعْضٍ fitna, that we have made some of you a fitna for others, they specifically say this is a reference to the neighbour, which means that you look at the neighbour, his house is better than yours, bigger than yours, he's got a car that's better than yours. So what do you do? You harbour envy, you harbour aspirations, you want that dunya, you want to be better than him. That aspiration, that takathur, one-upmanship and rivalry in wealth and wanting to acquire more just to keep up with him or beat him, that is a fitna. That is a fitna. So minor instances of fitna Hudayfah said that the Prophet said, the fitna of a man in his wealth, sorry, in his family, in his wealth, in his children, in his neighbor, these minor fitna, 
they can be expiated by, compensated for, by what? With what? That prayer, if a person prays, you see what the meaning of this hadith is, that all of these things are a fitna, and because of them a person can be distracted and commit minor sins. This distraction, these distractions, these minor sins, these slips, these failures in respect of Allah, as long as they are minor, they can be washed away with what? Salah. When a person prays Salah properly, sincerely, as Allah says, That good deeds remove and take away bad deeds. And as we know, Salah to Salah, Jumu'ah to Jumu'ah, Ramadan to Ramadan. One Ramadan to Ramadan, if a person performs two Ramadans properly by fasting, conscientiously, as he or she should, then inshallah through the barakah of the fasting of those two Ramadans, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove all of the sins in between. Two salah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove all of the sins in between. Jumu'ah to Jumu'ah, two Jumu'ah salah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove all of the sins in between. However, these are all minor sins and on various only with various conditions. That's why in one hadith, only if major sins are refrained from. So this is not a free ticket to sin in the hope that Salah wipes away sins, Ramadan wipes away sins. This is... It's like in any society. There are incentives. There are incentives. So good citizens are told, look, if you do this, then you will get this reward. If you do this, you will get this reward. Now, if a criminal comes along, a career criminal, and says, I want the reward as well, people, society, the authorities, the donors, the benefactors, all of these people will say, you know what, we make an exception for you. I'm a citizen, you may be a citizen. By law, I'm entitled to this. You may be, by the letter of the law, entitled to it. But this, the spirit of this gift, of this award, of this reward, the spirit of the law is that this is only meant for good people. Yeah, occasionally they may make slips, but they do good things. Society, the authorities, law, the people, the country will reward them. If you're a career criminal, if you are corrupt in many different ways, then even if you are deserving of this, it will be denied to you because of your other misdemeanors. So, as long as major sins are refrained from, this is a major point. Some people actually say that we will sin. They have openly said, we will sin and then pray Jumu'ah. We will sin and pray Salah. We will sin and then when Ramadan comes we'll make up for it. There is no such concept. We can't divide minor and major. That's why many ulama have said that one should never divide minor and major sins. For every sin, when you realize that you are committing the sin against Allah becomes major. If a sin is a disobedience of Allah... There is no major or minor. So major and minor sins, 
These are technicalities and an academic discussion best left to the ulama and theologians as to what they define as being minor and major. But in terms of everyday practical living, we shouldn't view sins as major and minor. Rather, we should view sins with, the, with this view that who am I committing the sin against? Who am I disobeying by committing this sin? And if we are disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then this really does become an academic distinction. That, oh, I'm disobeying Allah, but this is a minor sin. Oh, I'm disobeying Allah, but this is a small sin. No. So, small slips and failures in our families, in our children, in our wealth, and in our neighbours, this fitna can be cared for, taken care of, compensated for by salah, sadaqah, charity, by fasting, and by also enjoying the good and forbidding the evil. So when Hudayfa radiyallahu an said that to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an, Umar radiyallahu an said, no, no, I don't mean this fitna. This is a small fitna. I'm referring, I'm referring to that great fitna which will heave like the heaving of the ocean, which will be turbulent like the turbulence of the ocean. That's the fitna I'm referring to. So tell us about that. These are small fitna. The fitna of the family, the fitna of the children, the fitna of wealth. I'm talking about that great fitna which will heave like the heaving of the ocean. So Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, what do you want to do with that fitna? There is no harm to you. He didn't want to speak about it. Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu didn't want to go into any further detail. He tried to ward off the discussion by saying, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, what connection do you have with that? For it cannot harm you. For between you and that great fitna, which will heave like the heaving of the ocean, between you and that great turbulence, there is a door, a closed door. So Umar understood. He knew, he knew. And that's why Umar didn't persist and say to him, relate the whole, all the details to us. No. He did say, tell us about that f- great fitna which will heave like the heaving of the ocean. So Hudayfa radiallahu anhu said, what connection do you have with it, O Amirul Mu'mineen? There is no harm to you. You will not be harmed by that great fitna. Because between you and that great turbulence and that great fitna, there is a closed door. So what did Umar radiallahu anhu say? He simply asked, will that door be opened or will it be broken? So Hudayfa radiallahu anhu said, nay, it will be broken. So Umar radiallahu anhu said, in that case, it is most likely that it will never be shut again. I.e. the door of that great fitna will be cracked and burst and smashed open. And after that, it will never be closed. After that, there will be a deluge of fitan, a flood of fitan. That's true. So when Hudayfa radiallahu anhu related this hadith to his students, 
as I said, Shaqiq relates this hadith. So he continues in the hadith of Bukhari that we asked Hudayfa radiyallahu that who, in fact, they wanted to ask him, but Shaqiq says, Fahibna an nas'ala. We were too scared of asking him. So we asked Masruq, who was a great imam. He wasn't a Sahabi, he was a Tabi'i, one of the students of Hudayfa radiyallahu an, but he was much older, much more senior, much more knowledgeable, and someone that Hudayfa radiyallahu an also cherished. So we didn't ask him, but we asked Imam Masruq that can you ask Hudayfa radiyallahu an. I've said before, in Islam there is a culture of respect and reverence for one's teachers, for the ulama, for the seniors. And this goes back all the way to the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum and they sat before Rasulullah alayhi salatu wa salam. It was a gathering of serenity, of composure, of tranquility, of waqar, of respect, filled with awe and reverence. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were not disrespectful in any way. And the students of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were the same. These were all great tabi'un, the successors to the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And they saw many Sahaba with them. But that familiarity with the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did not lead them to becoming disrespectful or casual with them. In fact, when Hudayfa radiallahu anhu related this hadith, his students wanted to find out who the door, who or what that door was that Umar radiallahu anhu and Hudayfa radiallahu anhu were speaking of. Because both Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu was a keeper of the secrets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When Umar radiyallahu anhu asked him the question, he understood what he was referring to. He tried to ward off the discussion. And he tried to keep it ambiguous by simply saying there's a closed door between you and that great fitna. He understood, but he didn't want to explicitly say before the others. And he knew that Umar radiyallahu anhu also understood they were both talking in code, subhanAllah. Umar radiyallahu anh and Hudayfa radiyallahu anh were both talking in code. Each knew what the other was saying and referring to. So the, when Hudayfa radiyallahu anh related this hadith, his students wanted to know who or what was that door. But they were too scared to ask Hudayfa radiyallahu anh. Imagine, they were too scared to ask a simple question. That was a respect they had. So they then asked a much more senior person, Imam Masruq. They said to him, can you ask Hudayfa radiyallahu So Masruq asked him on behalf of everyone, that who was that door that you and Umar radiyallahu were both referring to? So Hudayfa radiyallahu said the door was Umar himself. So they asked him, did Umar know that he was the door? which was a protection against fitna, and which would be broken rather than opened, did he know that he was a door? So Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu said, he knew as well and as certainly as he knows that before the arrival of the morning comes this night, i.e., as everyone knows, that before morning there is night. With that conviction and with that certainty, 
Umar knew that he was a door himself. Why did he know? Of course he knew. Imam Bukhari and others all relate that once Prophet ascended Mount Uhud. And Mount Uhud began trembling. And who was with Rasulullah Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr, Umar and Uthman عنهم, the three Khulafa and Rasulullah when Uhud began trembling, the Prophet kicked it with his foot. He stamped his foot and he said, Oh Uhud, be silent and calm. For all there is upon you right now is a prophet, a truly honest and voracious one, Siddiq, and two martyrs. Uthman and Umar So Umar knew that his life would come to an end with shahada, with martyrdom. And he knew that he was that door. Why? We learn from other narrations that Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an and Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu an Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu an was Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an's brother-in-law. He was married to their sister. So Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma his maternal uncles were the Mad'un family. Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu an so Uthman ibn he was a very pious individual, extremely pious. He was the, when he was buried in Jannatul Baqi', the Prophet wasallam. when he died, Allahu Akbar, Prophet wasallam stood over him, wept, bent down, kissed him on his forehead, rose again, wept, bent down, kissed him on his forehead, rose again, wept, bent down and kissed him on his forehead. And because of the weeping of Rasulullah all of those present with Rasulullah also wept profusely. Imagine how fortunate he was. Prophet kissed him on his forehead thrice. And not only that, but he said to him, he said, addressing Uthman that you left this world in such a state that you did not touch the dunya and the dunya did not touch you. That testimony from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was the brother-in-law of, the, of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anh. When he was buried in Jannatul Baqi, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, bring me a stone. And then he took the stone and he marked the grave of Uthman radiyallahu anh. And he said, when members of my family shall die, I shall bury them next to Uthman. He wanted his own family to be buried next to Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu So Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu as well as Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu both of them ascetics, people who had nothing to do with the dunya. Abu Dhar radiyallahu once said to Uthman, Umar radiyallahu O Umar, I heard Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say that you are a lock against fitna. And Uthman ibn Mad'un radiyallahu and his brother-in-law told him, that Umar, I heard Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say that you are a lock against fitna. So other sahaba radiyallahu anhu had already told him that we heard the messenger of Allah say that you are a lock against fitna. You are a protection against fitna. And that's why when Hudayfa radiallahu an told him that between you and that great fitna and turbulence, there is a door. And 
He said, will that door be opened or broken? He said, it will be broken. In that case, it will never be shut again. The reason for mentioning this hadith is that this hadith beautifully describes small, minor fitna. The fitna in a family, the fitna in children, the fitna in wealth. And also the great fitna that will come later. So, let me speak about the great fitna. What came after the passing away of Umar ibn al-Khattab before I continue, this is the reason for mentioning this is that this is a lesson for us. That the dunya is a world full of fitan. Fitan is part fitna is part of Muslim life. Fitna is part of life. Fitna is part of dunya. So we shouldn't always just be saying fitna this, fitna that, fitna this, fitna that. Life is fitna. The dunya is fitna. We are a fitna. We have made some of you a fitna for others. We ourselves are a fitna. We are a test. Ni'mah is a fitna. That we test you as a fitna in good and evil. And we test you with good things and bad things. So the truth is, our life is full of fitna. This should not lead us to despair and despondency. It's how we react. This is a test and Allah wants to see how we behave, how we react. And these fitan could be minor or major. And the reason for mentioning these major fitan is to realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not made this world paradise or a place of perfection. So we should banish this idea that Things will be perfect around us, and especially politically. That we will have kingdom on earth. There is no kingdom on earth. There is a concept in some religions and some belief systems that we should work towards a kingdom on earth, a time of and a place of eternal bliss and peace. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never made the dunya for that. The rise and fall of power, the rise and fall in politics, changing governments, changing monarchies, changing dynasties, the rise and fall and the waxing and waning of power and the shifting of power and balance in power, this is part of Allah's sunnah and tradition in the world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that. Allah says in a verse, That Allah is addressing the sahaba radiyallahu anhum. That if you have been afflicted by a wound, then know that the others, your enemies, have also been afflicted by a wound. And this was in response to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum winning and losing. At times, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they won battles. And at times, they suffered greatly. In Badr, they won decisively. A year later, in Uhud, Ultimately, they didn't suffer a defeat because it more or less ended in a stalemate. But 
even before ending in a stalemate, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the Muslims, suffered huge losses. And that was in Uhud. And that's the nature of events. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if a wound has afflicted you, a wound has afflicted them too. And these days, i.e. of good fortune, bad fortune, winning, losing, of power, of loss. These days of varying fortunes. We alternate them between the people. So one day someone's in power, the other day someone else is in power. And this has been the history of Islam too. This has been the history of Islam. So we should not look for perfection in these things. We should not look for or expect perfection in power and politics. This is part of the fitna through which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us. So these are the major fitna. So even after Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu in fact, after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed away, what happened? Was there fitna or not? There wasn't the major fitna, but during Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anz, khilafah, which only lasted 27 months, he had to contend with, with Hurub al-Riddah, the, the battles of apostasy. Many of the, some of the tribes apostized, they turned away. Some of them did not turn away from Islam. They remained Muslims, but they refused to respect his authority as far as zakah was concerned. So they refused to pay zakah to him. Their argument was, we Muslim, we pray, we continue to fast, we continue to pay zakah, but we will not pay zakah to the central government, i.e. to the khalifa in al-Madinat al-Munawwara. We will distribute zakah amongst ourselves. Some of them said that. So there was rebellion and sedition in the 27 brief time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's khilafah. Umar radiallahu during his years, of course, uh, there was no great fitna per se, but there were minor fitna without that. But then the great fitan arose after Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu He was shaheed. He was martyred. And where was he martyred? He was martyred in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the musalla, on the sajjad, whilst leading the sahaba radiallahu anhum and the Muslims in fajr salah. If that's not a fitna, what is? Amir al-Mu'mineen being martyred along with other sahaba radiyallahu anhum who were also martyred on that occasion, in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Fajr salah. If that isn't fitna, what is? Umar radiyallahu anhu passed away, left this dunya. Uthman radiyallahu anhu became the khalifa. Six years, his khalifa was approximately 12 years. Six years, it was fine. Latter six years, there was rebellion. From many parts, Egypt, Kufa, Iraq, so, many acts of rebellion. They marched on Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara. They surrounded the house of Uthman radiyallahu anh. They prevented him from leading salah in the masjid. They prevented him from drinking water from the very well which he had purchased and donated to the Muslims during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Eventually, they stormed the house and martyred him in cold blood whilst he was reading the Mus'haf in the Qur'an, sitting down. In fact, his blood was spilt on the pages of the Holy Qur'an. 
His wife tried to protect him at that last minute. They even cut off the fingers of his wife in his home. Uthman and under such turbulent and tumultuous conditions was martyred. And he was the son-in-law of Rasulullah twice son-in-law, the Khalifa of the Muslims. And that's how he left the world. Uthman was shaheed. Umar was shaheed. Because of the brutal slaying of Uthman and the manner in which he was persecuted, because of the rebellion against the authority of Khilafah, because of the rebellious nature of some of these rebels from different parts of the Muslim realm, various people, including Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha, Talha, Zubair, Many of the Sahaba Sufyan, and various others from Sham, from Mecca, and from other parts of the Muslim realm, and even parts of Iraq, they demanded the blood, the, 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 the avenging of the blood of Uthman, and they demanded that. They felt they had a right, his family members, his successors, his extended family, the people of his clan, they demanded the avenging of his blood. And that's why they marched. Unfortunately, that led to a civil war. That was a fitna. They fought in the first famous battle, Waqatul Jamal, the Battle of the Camel. And the reason they called it the Battle of the Camel was Umm Mu'mineen Aisha anha was one of the leaders of that faction. And she was in her hodaj, palanquin, on the camel. And she was actually on the battlefield. So much so that the arrows that struck her hodaj made it look like a porcupine. Her hodaj, her palanquin, in English, the, the two words to describe the hodaj, hoda, are hoda, without the jim, h-o-w-d-a-h, or without the h, hoda. It's an English word, but it's taken from the word hodaj, Arabic. The other word to describe is palanquin, which is taken from Indian. It's, it's actually derived from balang. So in Urdu, in Asian languages, we have the normal bed with the straps, that's known as a balang. So the word palanquin in English is, ta- is derived from balang. So whether you call it hoda or palanquin, both words are derived from either Arabic or <coughs> Indian languages. So the hodaj, the hoda, the palanquin of Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha on the camel, it was attacked to such an extent that the arrows embedded in this hoda made it look like a porcupine. That's actually mentioned in the narrations. It looked like a porcupine. Eventually, the camel was hamstrung, and then, and that was Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha's hawda. The camel was hamstrung, eventually the battle ended, and then Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha was returned to Medina. However, uh, we should also remember that Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha is often cited as a pioneering example to be emulated and followed and a, and a pioneering precedent in her leadership on this occasion when she went out. 
but we should never forget. You can't just quote and cite things in hearts. The truth is, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, she did march on this occasion. She did lead this group of Muslims. She was instrumental and influential in this campaign. However, following that, she was actually doubtful during the course. Because on her way from Mecca to Basra, she came across a certain region where she was hesitant to proceed and she even wanted to go back. And only on the convincing of others did she continue. So she harbored reservations and doubts even on her way to Basra from Makkah. One. Two. After the Battle of the Camel, Umm al Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha, in fact, even before that, the, her sister wives, Umm Salama radiallahu anha, and all the others, they were vociferous and they were very strong in their opinion that she was in error and she should not march in this way and she should not leave. So the other wives refused to support her. One, and not only that, they also tried to dissuade her because they felt that was against the spirit of the life of the wives of the Prophet And not only that, when she was returned to Medina, from then till the day she left this world, she forever regretted this. Not the loss, she regretted having marched and having gone out and having campaigned in the first place. And in order to compensate for that, she would weep until her khimar, her scarf, would be wet with tears on every occasion. And not only that, to expiate and to compensate for that, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha would give in charity, emancipate, free prisoners give in the way of Allah specifically to expiate and to compensate for that camp for her going out and leading on that campaign. So on the one hand we hear of Aisha radiallahu anha being a pioneer and a leader and being bold and forward and setting a precedent and an example. But we never hear the other half. The other half is Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha harbored doubt and reservation. She was discouraged by the other sister wives. And not only that, but after this campaign, she refused to ever become involved again. She refused to ever leave again. And not only that, she regretted it for the rest of her life. She expressed remorse and regret publicly and explicitly. And she continued to weep and repent. She actually called it repentance. She called it tawbah, she called it repentance. She would repent and weep and give in the way of Allah to compensate for that. So let us not cite and quote only half of the story. So that's the reason that was called the Battle of the Camel, Waqa'atul Jamal. After the Waqa'atul Jamal, that was a huge fitna. The other second part of the fitna was Waqa'atul Sifin, where the Sahaba عنهم, again met in rival camps. In Safin, this is near Raqqa and in the northern part of Iraq and Syria. And there the two factions faced off with each other. The people of Iraq with Ali radiallahu anhu, the people of Sham with Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, Amr ibn al-As and others. 
And these were all Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. The, the, this is that fitna that Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu was referring to. This is a fitna that Hudayfa radiyallahu anhu was referring to. And this in Islamic history is known as a, the first great fitna. And sadly, on both sides were Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. However, do remember, this is no disparagement or detraction of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum or detraction from their noble virtue and their position. Each believed they were on truth. And not only that, unfortunately, as is always the case, there were many munafiqoon and hypocrites in between who were stoking the fires of fitna. And in fact, waqatul jamal, the battle of the camel, the battle would not have taken place. They were actually close to some sort of agreement because negotiations were taking place. On both occasions, in the Battle of Safin, the later, and before that in the Battle of the Camel, on both occasions there were negotiations, the negotiations were close to succeeding. Had they succeeded, the Sahaba anhum would have come together in agreement, there would have been not a single arrow shot. However, on both occasions, hypocrites, troublemakers, realised that their nefarious plans, plots and schemes were going to come to naught. So in order to ensure that a battle did take place, I won't go into the details, but the facts are there. They created further fitna and they actually instigated small skirmishes on both occasions, which then steamrolled and avalanched into a full-scale battle. So the hypocrites played their part then as well. So the Battle of the Camel, the Battle of Safin, these are two parts of that first great fitna that arose after the martyrdom of Uthman ibn Affan. Eventually, Ali, his khilafah only lasted five years. Five years. And what happened to Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib? Same, shahada. He was martyred. Ali was martyred. Later, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan continued to rule with relative stability for approximately 20 years after Ali radiallahu only 20 years. After 20 years, what happened? The Sahaba were still alive. His son Yazid ibn Muawiyah was nominated as a Khalifa. Many of the Sahaba radiallahu refused to accept his authority. And after Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan passed away, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, his son, assumed responsibility for the Khilafah. Many of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum refused to recognize him. Not many, some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. Famous amongst them, Abdullah ibn Zubayr and others. As a result, he, Yazid ibn Muawiyah only remained in power for approximately four years. And in those four years, subhanAllah, what happened in those four years whilst the Sahaba was still alive? The only reason I'm mentioning this is to show fitna is part of our life. Fitna is part of dunya. What happened in those four years? Just four years after Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan passed away. In those four years, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah, Mecca was attacked, Medina was attacked. The Sayyidina Hussein, the Prophet wasallam's grandson, was brutally martyred in Karbala. And this was just in the space of four years. If these aren't fitan, then what's fitna? After... A few years later, Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu anhu, Makkah was in another attack. 
Mecca. Also, in those four years, in, in what way was Medina attacked? It was attacked brutally to such an extent that people could not go to the Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa for salat. They couldn't. People were massacred in Medina. Ulama, Huffad, Qurra were massacred. Sahaba radiyallahu anhum were martyred in Al-Madinatul Munawwara in those four years. In the famous or infamous Waqatul Harra, the battle of the lava tract. Medina has two lava tracts. So one of them was a place where a large battle took place. After that, Medina was attacked. And it was ransacked. Medina was sacked. Medina was actually sacked. The city of the Prophet ﷺ within the first 65 years of Hijrah. Sahaba were martyred. Many ulama, huffad, qurra were martyred. After Medina, a few years later, Mecca for a second time was laid siege to, it was besieged by the Umayyad forces. And this is Mecca al-Mukarramah. The Kaaba was catapulted with mangonels and catapults. It was bombarded. The Kaaba was set on fire by mangonels. Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu an and the others, they took refuge in Al-Masjid Al-Haram. In fact, in the Ahadith, the Prophet ﷺ foretold this. The name of Abdullah ibn Zubayr, he wasn't mentioned by name, but there was a description, Al-A'idhu Billah. The one who would take refuge in the house of Allah. Al-A'idhu Bibaytillah, the one who would take refuge in the house of Allah. Who did that turn out to be? Abdullah ibn Zubayr People of Mecca took refuge in the Al-Masjid Al-Haram. And the Umayyad forces, Muslim, they continued to catapult Al-Masjid Al-Haram and the Kaaba set it on fire. Mecca was conquered, people were massacred. Abdullah ibn Zubayr, because he had, because he had declared Khilafah, Abdullah ibn Zubayr was executed. He was hung up on a gibbet. His mother, Asma radiyallahu anha, in her elderly age, had to go and retrieve his body from the gibbet. The grandson of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anha. The grandson of Zubayr ibn al-Awwam. Sorry, the son of Abdullah ibn uh, the son of Zubayr. The grandson of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anha. The son of Asma radiyallahu anha. The nephew of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. He had to be retrieved by his mother, no one else. And that's within the first few decades of Islam. If these aren't fitna, what is fitna? And then after that, the Umayyads consolidated their power. But for how long after that? 60 or so years before another fitna arose. And then there were forces from different parts of the Muslim realm and rebellion rose against the Umayyads. The Abbasids came to power. And the Abbasids... How were some of the Umayyad princes massacred? Do you know it's brutal? La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Some of the Abbasid rebels, when they took over Dimashq, Damascus, which was a seat of Umayyad power, on one occasion, the Abbasids actually had dinner. They killed the Umayyad princes, massacred them, and had dinner over their bodies. 
Now these details are gruesome, but these are fitting, these are fitting. And this has always been, unfortunately, part of history. And if we continue, throughout the Muslim centuries, in different parts of the world, even overlooking attacks on Muslims from non-Muslims, disregarding them, when Muslims fought amongst themselves, in fact, throughout the history of Muslims, whether they were Muslims in Spain, whether they were Muslims in Iraq, Sham, in Turkey, in Africa, all of the Muslim dynasties and monarchies and Muslim powers, in almost every region in different parts of Muslim history, you will come across fitna. Facade, corruption, strife, discord, sedition, disharmony. And not only that, even within families, even in Mughal India. Sons imprisoning their fathers. Brothers killing brothers. All for power over the throne. Fratricide. Patricide. Regicide. Infanticide. Killing children, killing parents, killing brothers, siblings. It was, it was more common than we can think. And this is amongst Muslims. So fitna, fasad, has always been part of our history. These are the fitna that the Prophet ﷺ prophesied. He said, بَادِرُوا بِالْعَمَالِ فِتْنًا كَقِطْعِ اللَّيْلِ الْمُظْلِمِ it's a hadith of Muslim from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an. Badiru bil a'mal fitanan ka qita'i layli al-mudlim. Yusbihu al-rajlu mu'minan wa yunsi kafira. Before the arrival of fitan, proceed and beads and surpass fitan through good deeds. And what will these fitan be like? They will be like the dark part, or they will be like the parts of a dark night. Meaning is that when a person looks at night, he thinks, oh, it's dark now. But as night proceeds, progresses, it becomes darker and darker. That's why they often say the darkest part of the night is just before dawn. So a person thinks it's dark now. And then before he realises, it's already night, so it's dark. But no, the later hours of the night are darker and darker, and darker, and darker, until the darkest part of the night is just before the crack of dawn. This is the meaning of like the parts of a dark night. And it's explained in another hadith where the Prophet says, Fitan will come upon you so much so that in rapid succession, a person will say, this fitna is going to finish me and destroy me. This fitna is going to finish me and destroy me. But he survives, he just manages to scrape through. And then another one comes along. And what the next one does is that the next fitna is so much more severe that it dilutes the experience of the first one. So he then says, this one is going to finish me. But he scrapes through the next fitna until another fitna comes. These are the words of the hadith. They will dilute, the next fitna will dilute the previous fitna. The next fitna comes, he thinks, this will finish me. But he manages to scrape through. Each subsequent fitna will be so severe that it dilutes the experience and the memory of the previous one. And he thinks, this one is worse than before, but this will destroy me, this will destroy me. And in this way, he proceeds through life. Fitna 
is part of our life. There is fitna in major things like these fitna that I've described. And then apart from that, there is fitna in ourselves, in our wealth, in our families, in our children. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us that we will be tested. This is the reality of fitna. So now, what do we do? So what does the Qur'an tell us to do? What does the Prophet sallallahu advise us to do in the face of fitna? There are a number of things, and I'll end with this. We don't have time to go into detail, but one, silence. Silence. Do not wag your tongue. Do not contribute to the fitna. Do not add to it. Do not stoke the flames. Do not add fuel to the fire by speaking. Every word in fitna is like the striking of a sword. Remain silent. Concern yourself with yourself. Keep to yourself. This is what many of the Sahaba عنهم, did. And not only that, Uqbat ibn Amir said to the Prophet وسلم, Ya Rasulullah, man najah, what salvation, how do I save myself? And this applies even in fitna. What did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say to him? Amsik alayka lisanak, wal yasa'ka baytuk, wabki ala khatiyatik. That, hold your tongue, i.e. in silence. Let your home and your house confine you. Stay at home. Wabki ala khatiyatik, and weep over your sins. Concern yourself with yourselves. In another hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to the Sahabi radiyallahu فَعَلَيْكَ بِخَاصَّةِ نَفْسِكَ that concern yourself with only your closest and dearest ones. And I'll actually explain this hadith in detail on another occasion where I'll speak on the topic of concern yourself with yourself. And this is related to fitna. That in fitna, the best thing to do is adopt silence. Concern yourself with yourself. Weep over your sins. Continue to do good deeds. And as a hadith of Hudayfa says, Stick to your salah, your psalm, your sadaqah. These will expiate and compensate for the failures in fitna. Not only that, realize that the dunya is a place of fitna and be cautious and be wary of everything and everyone and never lose sight of our ultimate goal and objective, which is, إِلَى turja'un To Allah you shall be returned. Allah is testing us. And finally, sabr. In every fitna, sabr. Silence and patience. Silence and patience. In every single fitna, patience is beautiful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards a person for patience. In everything. And taqwa. In one verse related to this, Allah says, وَإِن If you are patient and if you are wary of Allah, you adopt taqwa. So iman, good deeds, taqwa, sabr, patience and perseverance, silence, concerning oneself with oneself, avoiding anything, word or deed, which will involve a person in this fitna. This is the best option. There are many ahadith which actually go into this in more detail, but we don't have time. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. After having said so much, the, we don't have time, otherwise I'd go into detail. But 
these are some of the clear things mentioned in the Quran and in the hadith. Good deeds, iman, taqwa, silence concerning oneself with oneself, not being involved, not inflaming the tensions. All of these are the best protection. Another protection is always pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, some of the most famous du'as of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and refuge in him from these fitan. In fact, the words of the hadith are he would regularly pray for the protection of Allah against the fitna of life, the fitna of death, the fitna of the grave, against the fitna of wealth, against the fitna of poverty. And it's this realization, the realization that everything around us is a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are a test. This Before a person even begins to seek refuge in Allah and protection from these things, before a person adopts a certain stance and behavior towards fitna, one has to realize what fitna is. And that realization comes from becoming aware that our relations our contact, we for each other, we are a fitna. Our wealth is a fitna. Our families are a fitna. Our children are a fitna. Everything that Allah has given us is a fitna. Our ni'mah is a fitna. Any blessing which Allah bestows on us is a fitna from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to see, to test us how we react, how we behave. Are we grateful or ungrateful? So the first realization is that fitna isn't just Scandal or corruption or trouble. Fitna just means a test. And it could be in any one of these things. It could be as mild as our love for our children. And it could be as great as murder, massacre, political turmoil, disturbance and social upheaval. Or this is a spectrum. Fitna is everything in, in this whole spectrum. But once we become aware of what these fitna are, we should fear them, seek Allah's protection from them, and adopt the stance that Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam have advised us of in the face of fitna, all of which I will elaborate on, inshallah, in subsequent talks, especially concerning ourselves with ourselves, silence, and avoiding becoming involved. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah protect us from every fitna in our lives. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.